0: Hey guys, good to be with you this afternoon. I'll give you a head start. How about you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are going to be in um, in God's Word together right now. I'm really looking forward to the picnic after all this, and I'm looking forward to community groups, and so um, I hope you will engage with those really important ways for us to be together in community. Uh, But right now, uh, we want to dive into God's Word together. Um, I I don't know about you, but um, I've consistently um, been in awe and enjoy, to some degree, reading about Christians who've been martyred for their faith. Christians have been martyred for their faith. So people who came to a place where basically there was like a line drawn, and they were told that they had to cross the line, right? That they were to sin against God or worship another God, and if they didn't, then they would lose their life. Um, I think of Lambert, who was persecuted under Henry VIII, and uh, he was beaten and was going to be burned at the stake. And as that was happening, his famous last words were him raising his hands while he's dying, saying, none but Christ, none but Christ. Uh, I think of Lawrence Saunders, who was uh, martyred under uh, the bloody Queen Mary, the famous Queen Mary. And as he went to the stake, he kissed the stake, And he said, welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome life everlasting. You think of uh, Stephen, the first martyr in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, as he's being stoned, right? You know, old school stoning, right? With the rocks being thrown in, that kind of thing. And as he's dying, it says that he lifts his face up and sees Jesus in heaven, standing at the right hand of the Father. What an amazing scene. And he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And his final words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them." Uh, we're told C- Stephen saw the glory of God. That's what it says. G- Stephen saw the glory of God. And when he saw the glory of God, he asked for his killer's mercy. Uh, I know these are kind of hard stories sometimes to to hear about, but every time that I hear them, I'm in awe because I always wonder, what would make me into that kind of person? Like, what would make me into that kind of person? I I think it's pretty easy to be bold and courageous, even kind of standing up here in a position like I have even tonight. Um, But I often wonder in a moment like that, you know, would I have the courage to not deny Christ? You know, do, do I have what it would take to, to face potentially losing my life? Would I be faithful in the end? You know, I wonder if you've considered that question yourself. You know, if, if pressed, would you be faithful? If your life was re- literally on the line, like would you trust in God and his care for you? Or would you give in? And if you're listening tonight, you're here, you're watching online, and you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking that's a really strange question, right, but, but even if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you would even ask yourself right now, what would make Jesus so compelling that people would even consider that kind of question? That people would go through something like this? See, in our text today, we see some of God's people face this very real question. So again, Daniel chapter 3 is where we are uh, tonight, and, and we're going to consider, uh, well really, this story is probably the only other story besides Daniel and that when you hear Daniel, you're like, I know this one, right? The fiery furnace episode, right? So that's where we are tonight. You've probably been excited for this week, but what we're going to do right now is I'm going to do what I did last week. I'm just going to read us the whole story, and then we're going to work our way through it. It's an amazing story. So Daniel chapter 3. Uh, Read along with me. Obviously, it'll be on the screen, I believe, for you, but I just really encourage you to grab a Bible, put it in your lap, follow along even as we go through the service. There's some Bibles there in the back table uh, that I would encourage you when you come and you may be like, oh, I forgot my Bible. Grab that one. Use it when you're here. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you as a gift. Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates... And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the pipe, the horn, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, t- lyre, tygon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, From the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered, And see, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. There's three uh, clear movements in our passage uh, tonight. The outline should be on the screen for you. Uh, but this is really the main idea, the thing that we really need to get across that that Daniel's trying to get across to us, and that's this. You won't bow the knee in false worship if you are already bowing your knee to the God who rescues. You won't bow your knee in false worship if you're already bowing your knee to the God who rescues. This is key. And so we see first is this call to bow. The second thing we see is this faithful few who won't bow. And then lastly, we see a God who's actually worthy of bowing to. So let's look at this call to bow in verses 1 through 7. We see in verse 1, if you want to look down there, that King Nebuchadnezzar, remember he's the king of Babylon, he's conquered the Israelites, he's exiled these Israelite people, and and now they're in this sort of pagan pantheon nation of various gods. And he has this great image of gold constructed and we are told that this image was 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide. Now, imagine you measure nothing in cubits this week. So let me help you out just for a second here. That's 90 feet tall, okay? 90 feet tall, so about seven stories tall, depending on probably how modern the house is or something. But, uh, but also very, very narrow is this image. Now, I did some research for us because we don't have anything like this in Gresham. I looked up the tallest buildings in Gresham. And did you know the tallest building in Gresham is the Quality Inn? Okay, so that's what we got here. That's the best reference point I have for you. Um, so maybe double the height of this, but way more narrow, okay? But this image was made of pure gold, okay? So imagine the quality and made of pure gold. That would be fantastic, right? So just imagine standing in, in front of something this large, like double in size, really narrow, made of gold. That's what this image is that he has made, and he's placed it on the plane of Dura. Right Now, it's really important to see that this image is connected to what we saw last week in chapter 2. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that just troubled him really greatly. And in the dream, what he sees is this gold image, this golden head that represented Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Right? And so there's all these other images. And, and what happens is this stone comes and crushes that gold head, that gold image, And all the other kingdoms that are represented in that image, and they they just blow away like chaff, right? So now some time has passed, and Nebuchadnezzar has this image made, and it's made of pure gold. You imagine then as a namesake, constructed representative of his kingdom and who he is. So I don't know, maybe Nebuchadnezzar just really doesn't understand the dream and its point that there's a stone that comes and crushes his kingdom, you know. Um, Or or maybe he just understands it well and thinks, well, the dream and that image was about me, and and so uh, since I'm gold, like I'm going to make this gold image, you know. I want to make the image in my likeness. And that's exactly what he's doing. We see all these people gather to stand before this image, Right? All these key leaders are standing before this 90-foot-high image. Just think about that. But then we see in verse 4 that this is not all that they're called to stand there to do. That would not be sufficient. They are called to do something far more when the herald declares that when the music plays, everyone is supposed to bow down and worship the image. So this massive band plays. You heard the instruments read over and over again, right? These people fall down and they worship. So, so what is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do here? Well, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was a spiritual man who believed in many gods, so perhaps his goal is that when he's conquered all these various nations, that he, he could set up a god that everyone worships, and this could be maybe a unifying force in his kingdom, right? You could keep your former gods. If, if you've been conquered and you worship a different god, you can keep that god, you can worship that god, but everyone is going to worship this god, Right? He's not asking them to forsake their gods. Even these guys here, they they can worship Yahweh, but you know, they must add this God to their their God. You you could say this and think about this even in Christian terms, right? Even we live in a day and age where people would say, you can follow Jesus, you can worship Jesus, but you have to also do this, right? You have to worship this. So, So bowing before this God is not an optional thing. We saw that. It's required. And if you don't bow down, there's substantial ramifications. Now, as you heard the passage read aloud, this is why I wanted to read it aloud, you probably noticed the repetition, right? A lot of things kept being repeated, and that's meant to communicate something to the hearer. And one thing that is repeated over and over again, and I tried to help you out there a little bit, is the phrase set up. You saw it said a lot, right? Five times, actually, in the first seven verses, you see this phrase, set up. So in verse 1, he set it up on the plain of Dura. Then we get this phrase that the image of the king had to be set up, right? It keeps saying set over and over again. Well, that word set up is is the same word from chapter 2. Verse 21, look over there. What does Daniel say after God reveals this dream to him? Daniel blesses God and he says what? God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. So the author is trying to help us see that Nebuchadnezzar, he's trying to play God. God's the one who sets up. God's the one who tears down. But here, like God, Nebuchadnezzar is setting this up. He's setting it up. It's being set up. Now, the only response is to fall down and worship the image. And if they don't, what happens? You see in verse 6 whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. So, evidently, near this golden image, right, there was this smoldering furnace. You can imagine that the gold used and, and shaped to make the image was probably made from that furnace. So you have this furnace pretty near, probably closely to this image, and so here's these two options that you could probably see in view of your own eyes, either worship this golden image or be thrown into that furnace. That probably made the image. Only two options. Now in a country where we have options as basically our number one value, right? I mean, this sounds weird to us. Only two options. There's no third, no fourth, no fifth, no sixth, you know, just two. But this tells us that the music plays, and what happens? Everybody falls down in worships. I mean, it appears at the text here that everyone is joined in. So guys, before we move on, we should be careful to not simply see ourselves, as most often we do. We read stories like this, and who do we resonate with? We resonate with the guys, right, that we read that don't bow down. But in fact, we are more like Nebuchadnezzar and we are way more like the crowd than we would like to admit. I mean, we often could spend our days trying to play God or we, like the crowd, spend our days responding and giving ultimate worth to other things that aren't God. You might be saying, well, I don't go to temples, and I don't, I don't worship idols, and I would probably tell you that's a, that's a really good thing, right? You shouldn't do that. But idolatry is much more than a figurine. It's much, more, it's much different. It's much more than an object. An idol is something we give our heart to other than God. And so worship is definitely what we do in public, but it has way more to do with what we even do in private when no one's looking. See, if an idol is more of a heart thing than a physical thing, then then that would indicate that I could have many idols in my life because an idol then is anything that I give ultimate worth and value to and even sway over my life instead of God. It could be anything. It could be good, it could be evil, just good things that I turn into ultimate things or things that God has said that is not of me. So we might not worship a 90-foot golden image, but we will dance for anyone, maybe if it feeds that desire we have, that idol we have for people to like us. We might not bow to a fake God like this, but we might bow to the idol of comfort whenever it's given to us. We might bow to a desire for power and more control. See, there is a call to bow here and if we're being real, we often assimilate in bowing with the rest of the crowd before we think to ourselves those kinds of thoughts like man i really hope this person over here's listening to that right? we need to humble ourselves enough to admit that we bow too but there are a few faithful few who don't bow Verses 8 through 18, that's what we see next, right? There's this sudden shift in the text in verse 8 where this group of Chaldeans who are a part of what we would call the wise men, which were the astrologers and magicians. We saw these guys last week. There's a group of them. They come to Nebuchadnezzar, and we see a hint of their motivation here. They have a malicious intent to what? Accuse the Jews. They come to Nebuchadnezzar, and they say that there is a certain group of Jews that when the musics playing. They will not fall down, right? So we got some tattletales here, basically, right? And we see their motivation in verse 12. What do they say? Right? There's a certain, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province right, who aren't doing this. We saw last week after Daniel's success that, that he was promoted and he had his three friends promoted. And so we can imagine how this might have offended certain people that were longing for those kinds of positions, Right? They might think, well, here, king, you were the one who promoted them, and now, look, they're not even listening to you. But, hey, we aren't disobeying you. I mean, maybe you could think of us next time it comes around for promotions. All right, so we're told repeatedly before this story that Daniel and his three friends, they continue to experience favor from God and favor from Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, all they've known in our story so far in the book of Daniel is success and is promotion, but that changes very quickly. Here we see in verse thirteen. Look there. After Nebuchadnezzar has told this, he is in a furious rage. All right? We saw his anger problem last week. Apparently, this is a repeated problem. This guy's got an anger issue. It appears. Right? What does he do? He has these three guys brought in for a sort of talk. He wants to have a talk with them. Right? He's angry, but he gives them a chance to explain things. So he asks them, "What does he say? Is it true?" Right, do you really not bow down when everyone else was bowing down? So he goes, "I'm going to give you another chance. Right, the music's going to play, right? If you bow down, it's good and fine. everything will be all right. Um, but if not, your consolation prize is a furnace. Right? Right, if you do not worship, you'll immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. So I'm going to give you one more chance. But then look what he says, look what he says. This is very important in our text. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You see that in verse 15. So he asked the question, but in asking the question, he really isn't asking the question, do you see that? He's basically saying there is no God who can save you. Right? There is no God. He's making a theological statement. There is no one in the world that can rescue you out of powerful Nebuchadnezzar's hands. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they face a choice. Will they bow down or will they burn? Will they obey their God or will they obey this king? Let we see their response in verse 16. Right, they, what do they say? O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You have set up. I've heard it said before that one mark of godly people, of godly Christians, is that they fear sinning more against their God than they fear suffering because of obedience to their God. That they fear sinning more than they fear suffering. They go, I'd rather not offend my God, and instead I'd rather endure suffering. That's exactly what these guys do. Well, they say He will deliver us. They have great confidence, but if He doesn't, we ain't doing it still. Right? They they have a hope in something that even goes beyond their own death. So they respond to the king in a respectful way, but they respond very directly, don't they? Very boldly. They answer his question, who will deliver you out of my hands, right? I mean, what God can even do that? And they answer his question. They go, well, our God will. He'll deliver us, right? They believe our God is able, but they also say, but if he doesn't do it, right, we'll still trust him. He's he's able, but if he doesn't, it's not because he's not able. And it's not because he's not worthy. I just want to walk through now, I mean, why would they do this? Why would they respond this way? When, when I read you a few of those quotes of, of people's statements at the beginning, like, how do you become something like that? How do these guys get there? I mean, because imagine, I, I think for a lot of us, we probably get to situations like this, we read stories like this, and if we're being really rational, we, we, we've navigated certain things and processed this moment very differently. Because for many of us, we'd probably rationalize maybe bowing down just the one time at least, right? I mean, these guys could have thought of some justification for bowing, right? They could have thought we can bow outwardly, but we know internally we're not really bowing. Or they could have thought, we will only bow a couple of times, and then maybe after they see us do it a couple of times, they'll kind of forget about this whole dilemma thing, and and we'll just kind of be able to go on our merry way. Or maybe they think we'll only bow once or twice, right? Maybe they thought other people are giving in. I mean, look, everybody's falling down. So what do you think God expects from us? They could rationalize, well, God is a forgiving God, so he'll forgive us, right? Right? Or they may have thought, if we comply now, we get to keep our jobs, not just our lives, our jobs, and we can continue in this role that God has given us, and we can use this position of influence for good in the long term, right? So the good outweighs the bad. And we could come up with more and more of rationalization here, and I, I wonder if recently, maybe even in your life, you've been facing some areas of temptation, some areas of temptation around certain sin, or you find yourself even using various forms of rationalization yourself. You know, you think things like, well, I'll just do it the once, you know, or I'll do it twice. God will forgive me. Or other people are doing it. I mean, if, if I could stay in this role, right, and I could use it for good long term. Right? Guys, we undermine, I think, when we come to a passage like this, we undermine the importance of choosing to do something, resolving to do something before we even have to face the choice. I mean, look at these guys. I mean I mean basically you have to resolve before the choice even comes here. I don't know how else you make this sort of decision. I mean, that's what these guys are doing. They're resolving. I mean, just think about these guys probably knew the Ten Commandments well. And so when the Ten Commandments were given to God's people, commandment one is, You shall have no other gods before me. You know, commandment two, Do not make a graven image and bow down and worship it. So these guys are going into Babylon thinking, We ain't doing that. We know how we're supposed to live. So there's a resolve here before the choice even comes. And that's so significant for us in our lives as we face temptations, as we face things that we might be tempted to compromise on. I mean, I'll just be completely honest with you, it's a it's, it's main issue for me, right? I, I tell my wife, you know, I probably could lose like 20 pounds if I just stopped eating after my kids go to bed at night, you know? And so every night I could get to that a point of the day and I could go, we'll just see what happens. Maybe I won't, maybe I will, right? But I know myself and I get the kids go to bed. If I approach that moment as we'll see what happens, it's happening, you guys. It's totally happening, right? So what do I have to do? I have to resolve, hey, when those kids go to bed, I'm not doing it, right? If not, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. The same is true of anything, right? So these three had faith to believe their God could deliver, but why? Why did they believe that? Why did they go, our God can do it? How do you get there? How could they believe their God could deliver them from the most powerful man in the entire world? Well, they could remember God's faithfulness in the past, couldn't they? In a multiple horizons sort of way. I mean, they know the story of their own people. They know how their people were slaves in Egypt and God delivered his people from the most powerful king on planet Earth, Pharaoh. He did it through miracles, right? Through a parting of the Red Sea, through blood being over the doorposts and and children's lives being saved in Israel, right? We know this story, don't we? What's astonishing is they would probably know the book of Deuteronomy and how Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20, this should be on the screen for you, but it says there, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. So God's people would have already thought of that experience in Egypt and deliverance from King Pharaoh's hands, right, as a furnace, an iron furnace that they were brought out of. So if God could bring us out of that furnace, he can bring us out of this one. But but I think even more so, I mean, just think about how aware they had to be of God's personal faithfulness to their lives over the last even just two chapters. We saw them conquered and assimilated God gave them favor, they, they grew, they were given jobs, and then last week, God saved them from death in a miraculous way through this dream interpretation. So in their own lives, they'd seen God be faithful, and so ultimately, here they're trusting in what? God's character. They think our God has been faithful, so we will continue to trust him in his will and his ways. I It's really important to see here what they are not saying, though. They aren't saying, look, we were faithful to not bow down so god has to be faithful to us right we were faithful so god must as a payment for our faithfulness be faithful to us in a way that we want him to manifest his faithfulness that's not what they say they don't claim to have in any way earned god's deliverance they're just saying we just trust our god he's faithful so this is the exact outlook that you and I, in our lives, that we need to have. We need to set verse 16 through 18 and those astonishing words that they say deep into us that we could be able to say, man, this is my heart. God is able, but if he doesn't, I'm not bowing. I mean, because there's going to be times, you guys, where the whole crowd around you will bow. And it'll feel weird. And you'll stand out if you don't. So, we need to have wisdom and resolve to know what's the right thing to do in God's eyes. So, how will you know not to bow? How will you know when not to die on a hill? I mean, I I think as Christians in America, we, we think that stories like this, they feel so far removed to us, right? Because I even just said something like, you know, uh, you're gonna, maybe everyone's going to bow down and you won't it'll feel weird. But the ramification is not that you'll be thrown to a fiery furnace today, right? So this feels distant from us. So it feels like a struggle to navigate areas of our lives where we're thinking, is this me bowing the knee to something other than God? Right? We struggle to discern what is persecution, what is temptation to sin, and what is optional. Right? We struggle to know if we are tempted to bow our knee in false worship, or if we're just struggling to bow our knee and dying to ourselves. I mean, I think the the issue that's probably the most obvious and pressing to us is we've looked over the landscape of Christianity as we've thought about it in our own lives, is, is around masking in the last 18 months. Right? When we are told you, you should wear a mask, we're going, oh, is this sinning? Right? Is this persecution? Should I not do this? Should I do this? And we're struggling with that kind of stuff. But we must look at God's word and go, okay, how do I know what's right and wrong? What's bowing the knee in worship and what's not? Right? Well, I, I mean to say, we we must explore this. So here's a few questions for you and I to consider when we're trying to discern when should I bow the knee or when should I not, so to speak? When should I keep standing? Number one, the first thing we got to go to is this, does the Bible forbid this thing? Does the Bible forbid this? Meaning, is this sinning? Is God saying to me, it's sinful if you do that, right? That offends me. This is this would be in terms of character and how I'm living my life. Is my character imaging the character of God? Am I not doing something God's called me clearly to do? Or, or am I doing something that God's clearly told me not to do? Basically, does Jesus look at my actions and say, You are sinning against me? Right? Then then I, sh- I shouldn't do that, right? I shouldn't do that. I mean, the Bible is so clear about many of these things. Like the book of 1 Thessalonians alone, it has these really helpful phrases in it that says things like, this is the will of God for you. And every time it says, this is the will of God for you, it's describing very clear moral things, right? Flee from sexual immorality. This is the will of God for you, right? Stuff like that. We don't want to in any way, though the temptation is very real in there, to read God's words and go, yeah, I know it says that, but we, we don't want to cloak God's commands in modern clothing of love and say, it's okay then, because I'm doing it to love this person. And we all know this modern love says, do what you feel like you want to do, and it's unloving for me to say that I don't think that's what God wants you to do. Right, that, that's not an excuse to just ignore things that God's made clear. But secondly, I think the question we need to ask is, does the Bible promote an idea that is contrary to this? So there's times where the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not smoke marijuana, right? And we have to wrestle with that, right? And so I'm so thankful for people like Todd Miles, who just recently wrote a book, Cannabis and the Christian. He's a professor over at Western Seminary, and he's doing that kind of work. He's saying, does the Bible promote an idea that's contrary to this? Because you have to wrestle with these kinds of things. I think another area where, where, we, where we can be clear on this is where uh, when it comes to maybe the world's views and God's views of gender and sexuality, you know, it does God promote a vision that's very true and contrary to what the world says is a vision around sexuality and gender? Right? Is, the Bible cle- is the Bible clear? And it is clear, right, that men and women are made in the image of God, male and female, right? It has a clear vision of gender, has a clear, clear promotion of that, has a clear promotion of marriage, right? It has a clear promotion of many things, it has a clear vision for singleness and a goodness to that that God has made. So does the Bible promote an idea that is contrary to what I'm being confronted with here? All right, and thirdly, we get down even more so into areas of discernment, and we should ask ourselves, does God want this for me? The hard part with this one is, is uh, again, we're getting to less moral things here, and a little bit more discernment things, and you have to really know God, an intimate way to answer this kind of question. And you have to be able to do life in community with other people to answer this kind of question. Right, I mean, this is this is kind of the equivalent of like knowing my wife over time and dating my wife over time, and through knowing and dating my wife, I learn the things that she likes and the things that she doesn't like. Right? so I've learned over time if I take my wife out to like get some tea at a tea house and I bust out bananagrams, she's gonna go, "This is the worst date ever." Right, that's not gonna go over well. But if I take my wife, you know, to dinner and kayaking and a Gregory Allen Iscoff concert or something, she's going to go, this is great, you nailed it, right? But you learn those things over time as you do life with somebody even, like a spouse. The same is true with God. As we spend time with God, we learn about God's heart for us. And so at the end of the day, we're not just saying, what does God want for me? In a way that I would look at that question and go, well, what do I want for me? I'm sure God wants that same thing. But at the end, we need to know what God wants for us. And what is that? Well, it's ultimately to make you more like Jesus, right? So the question I often ask myself is if I do something like this, what kind of person is that going to make me into? Is it going to make me more like Christ? Because oftentimes what God wants for me is not what I want for me in the moment. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, who's quadriplegic and Uh, has written many books. She's an amazing athlete, and she wrote words like this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Meaning that there are things that God allows in my life because it's accomplishing something bigger. It's going to make me more like Christ. So again, where are you right now? What, What kind of things are you facing? Where's the temptation for you to compromise or assimilate? To give in and do what everyone else is doing, even though you know that you shouldn't be bowing the knee. Where are you even tempted to kind of cloak God's word, that are clear areas, and say, make it say something it's not actually saying? Right, where do you need to resolve before the temptation even comes? So so we see people just bowing. We see a few who don't bow. They, they've discerned these sorts of things. And finally, we see the climax here, and that's a God worth bowing to in verse 19 through 30. So we see here that Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts. He's filled with fury, and he orders that the furnace is heated seven times the temperature that it's normally heated. So he basically says, heat it as much as you can. I mean, if we think about it, think about how rational that would be. If he really wanted to punish these people he would say something like, cool it down just enough to where it would kill them over time, right? Like you would do something like that, not heat it up to where they just die instantly, right? Their their anger is irrational, if you think about it. That's how upset he is. He loses his mind. So we have some soldiers even bind them and try to take them to drop them into this furnace, and it's so hot that they even die. That's how brutal the heat is, And then verse 23, is it all over? Did we just see some Hebrew martyrs? Well, the original hearers would have heard this story for the first time and thought, well, that's the end. I mean, if the guys who bound him up even got killed, right? No one survives the king's furnace. This is what the king would have thought as well. But then all of a sudden, verse 24, the king was astonished and he rose up in haste and asked, did we not cast three in the fire? And they say, yes, king, we did. He goes. Well, I see four men in there, unbound. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth guy is like a son of the gods. They're not destroyed. That's troubling. But what's even more troubling is there's a fourth guy, and he don't look like the other ones, right? They aren't destroyed, but even more so, guys, they're not alone. They're not alone. So he comes, he goes to the door, Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls out to them. And they, so they do, and they don't even, they come forward, and they don't even smell like fire, right? What a miracle. I mean, I roast s'mores for 10 minutes, and I smell like a fire for like a week, right? I mean, and this is not, they don't have electric furnaces, right? This is not clean energy, you know, whatever. I mean, this is like coal, fire, I'm guessing, you know, that kind of thing. They don't even smell. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar says in response, verse 28, what does he say? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. So he speaks well of these three guys' God. And he even makes a decree that no one could speak poorly of this God. So we're getting the picture here. Nebuchadnezzar, he's kind of dramatic, right? He's pretty extreme. There's no middle for Nebuchadnezzar. So what happens in the furnace? All right, there's three thrown in, now there's four. Well, guys, the point is that we see that God is with his people in the furnace, So who's the fourth? That's the question everybody asks. Well, we aren't told the identity of the person in the text. Maybe this is Jesus before his incarnation. That's what some people say, that Jesus was the one that is with them. And that's a reasonable conclusion. Or others think it's an angel, it's a messenger of God. But the point is the same. The point is exactly the same. God was with his people in the midst of their greatest suffering and threat. That's the point. When all hope was lost, when they were at the very end of their rope, right? God was with his people in the midst of their greatest suffering and threat. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I'll never forget how C.S. Lewis, when he was going through all this suffering, I think related to his wife's illness, especially, people asked him, is this kind of suffering? cause you to doubt in the existence of God and he goes no it doesn't cause me to doubt in the existence of God but it makes it causes me to believe strange things about God suffering can do that can it we begin to ask questions in suffering like is God even here does God even care is he still good but my gosh you guys God is with his people in the midst of their greatest suffering and threat. God drew near. God was with them in the furnace. He's faithful in the furnace. I mean, doesn't this echo the words of Pro- uh, prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. These guys read those words which came a century before them. And they're like, I believe it. God is always faithful to his people. You read Peter, when he writes to the spiritual exiles scattered across modern-day Turkey, enduring horrible persecution under the emperor, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Meaning like, if you're suffering, don't go, why is this happening? This is weird. No, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As these three men needed a Savior, verse 15 revealed that. Who is the God that can deliver you? That's salvation language. And you and I need a Savior just like they did. But do you see who our Savior is? Who is the ultimate and truest fourth person in the furnace? Do you see? See, when the when you experience the furnace of suffering in your life, especially if you suffer for your faith in God, those are actually meant to be moments that press you into remembering Christ's suffering for you. That's why Peter writes, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Their sufferings remind them of what Jesus suffered for them. So we remember that Jesus entered a fiery furnace That was not lit up and turned up super hot for him. The furnace was cranked up, rightfully so, but it was cranked up because of me. And it was cranked up because of you. But still, Jesus entered it willingly, not because somebody had authority to throw him into it, but he willingly entered into it. Why? He entered into it not because we didn't bow the knee in false worship, but because we too all oftentimes do. But Jesus, the one who never bowed the knee once, and in reality who every knee should bow to, entered the furnace of God's righteous worship, wrath against sin so that all who look to him and say there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way whoever is that kind of person who looks at him and says that will know that he will be with them even when they face moments of suffering where people laugh at them laugh at you and say who can deliver you from this oh my goodness you guys what what are we facing today what are you facing today Do you know that God is with you in it? He's faithful in the furnace. I mean, if you are not a Christian, I want you to consider Jesus who endured suffering and death so that if you were to finally turn and bow the knee to Him, you would experience salvation. So we look back now, you guys, not at some iron furnace in Egypt or some furnace in Babylon, but the furnace of the cross. And we know that we have been delivered. So, our God is Emmanuel with us today. This should change everything. I heard a story recently of a test that was happened in Nor- Norway where they tested these lab rats in this science experiment to see how long rats could swim. This is in the 50s, and these rats swam for about 17, 18 minutes and they give up. Right, and so finally, they decided, okay, let's, let's rescue these rats out of the water before they give up. And so these rats swam for 17, 18 minutes. And right before that point, before they were going to give up, they rescued them. They rescued them out of the water. And they took those rats that they'd rescued out of the water, and they go, let's just see how long they swim now. And they put these rats back in the water. Sounds gross, right? I understand. I hate rats. Maybe you're, like, going to call Peter right now on the Norwegians. I don't know. But, like, they put these rats back in the water, and they swim. And they get to 17 minutes and they swim. They get to 18 minutes and they swim. They get to 20 minutes and they swim. 40 minutes and they swim. 60 minutes and they swim. They swam for 17 hours. And the only conclusion is, the difference is, these rats experienced rescue. And because they had experienced rescue, they could swim. Because even their own little rat brains... They're thinking, it happened before. I'm just going to keep swimming. Guys, we are people made in the image of God. Whom Christ has died for. So if you've experienced rescue from Christ, that fuels us to keep swimming. In the midst of suffering, even. Even. So we know, well, he'll do it again. Even if I die, but even if I won't bow the knee, I've been delivered. Right? So we need wisdom to know what the difference between bowing the knee in worship and bowing the knee and dying to myself is. I need that. How about you? Guys, we should be marked as people who bow the knee and dying to ourselves and not bowing our knee in worshiping false and empty gods in this world because we worship a God who suffered and he's been exalted to the highest place and the great promise is that one day every knee will bow to him. And so you won't bow the knee in false worship if you're already bowing your knee to the God who rescues Who is the God who will deliver you from the furnace? Oh, there is a God who's able to rescue in this way, and there is no one like him. There's no one like him. Let's all stand together as we pray. God, who is like you amongst all the nations? I mean, who is like you? A God powerful enough to endure and save and rescue us. A God who comes near. A God who is over all. A God who sets up. A God who tears down. God, you are the one worthy of all of our worship and praise. Would you tonight capture our hearts with the glory of Jesus, just like Stephen's heart was captured, just like all these other people have been captured by his glory. Lord, we want to do that tonight. We ask that you do that tonight in our own hearts and in our church as a whole. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.